Okay, this is just some questions and answers about Uman Rosh Hashanah. Here we go. Uh, uh, this one, I wanted to know, well, what do people see in, when they're learning the Nakhon's teachings that, that you know, drives them? Drives them crazy? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> it makes them want to come back for more. Rabbi Nachman's teachings are far-reaching. He somehow manages to tap in with his teachings to the inner depths of the person's soul and cause a major, major wake-up call that's not found in any other area of the Torah. Even though everything he teaches is founded on the Torah and it's there, his uncovering it makes it unique and the presentation and format that he um, brings forth is such a... like. Uh, uh, harkava, a combination of all types of healings that just cause a person to feel a major connection to what he's saying and it resonates so deep that a person feels this has gotten me in my life and I want to continue to pursue it. This is the cause why people do pursue Rabbi Nachman's teachings after seeing that it touched them on such a deep sensitive and caring point, showing that there's hope and there's someone out who understands exactly what they're going through, and there is hope for them to advance and to have major accomplishments in life, spiritually, physically, mentally, etc. What was your? Tell me about your first Uman. When was it? What was it like? I've been coming to Uman every year, except for unfortunately this past year because of the Corona, yeah. since 1992. Wow. It's 28 years. I came here at age uh, 19, 20, 20 years old approximately. And of course it wasn't like it was today. There were no showers. We were here for over a week with no showers. Food, we had to bring everything canned, canned sardines, canned this, canned that, matzah, gefilte fish canned, you know, glass jars, whatever. Once my mayonnaise opened up on a Lufthansa flight and they had to put my whole bag in another bag because the, the mayonnaise spilled. Oh boy, it stunk, okay? But in any event, it was uh, on the physical conditions. It was, I, I, if I look back, I wouldn't be able to do that again. You know, no shower for one week. There was no running water all day. Like there was a f two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. We had to rent apartments of these Ukrainians. I was back then. It was right after, right after, what was called Glasnost, after 1989 when Gorbachev declared Glasnost. And Ukraine became independent of, of Russia. So the poverty here was unbelievable. And, the, and we had to rent these apartments of like very low class, you know, poor people. And there was like a stench everywhere. So physically, there was nothing. But the light people felt, you know, there was such a, a, a light of holiness that can't be explained because it's right after over 50, 60, or even 70 years of people's yearning accumulating due to the communist regime closing the borders. So after being closed for so long, and then boom, opening up in 1989 slowly, trickling more, 1990, 1991, I was 92 already. So the feeling of their yearning was unbelievably intense. People were getting dirty everywhere. There were, you know, there was dust everywhere but people were extremely happy and they didn't feel anything. You felt you were on a real high. It was a real, real spiritual high. For me, the, the ex biggest experience was davening for the first time ever with Breslover Hasidim. That year, 1992, 
like this year, I think Rosh Hashanah was Tuesday, Wednesday. Okay, so it was Monday night, Tuesday, Wednesday. We came on the Shabbos before Rosh Hashanah. And my whole thing was to finally meet the breast of us that I read about in English books that came out back then, Crossing the Narrow Bridge, where Chaim Kramer had just come out. And he had, a, he had a breast of biographies. Most of them were still alive, those people. There were Michal Dorfman, of Moshe Burstein, of Nachman Burstein, of Blessed Memory. And I wanted just to meet these people, just to kiss their hand, or, you know, just to see them, just to shake their hand. It was, uh, it was very emotional for me to meet these breast of leaders who so much influenced me through what was written about them, etc. So by me, like a, a young person discovering Disneyland for the first time, if you want to compare it, if that, that's what I can do. It was such an amazing experience. And then davening with the breast of us, which is a totally different davening, slow, on Shabbat, and feeling that connection was amazing. What also got to me back then, since I'm of Sephardic origin, and I continue to be of Sephardic origin, I was very, very, very impressed that even though Brestov is technically a Hasidic Ashkenazi movement, the majority of people I saw, I know man, and still see, are Sephardim. And I was so proud and happy to see that you can be a follower of Rabbi Nachman's teachings and still maintain your Sephardic heritage. For me, that was amazing. As if he's saying you can be who you are. We're not coming to change what you're doing. We're coming to help you on how to be a Jew and what you're doing already, how to do it with more simcha, enthusiasm, and connection to God, which that's Rabbi, Rabbi Nachman's teaching. So that's what they do. So you were at the first Uman Rosh Hashanah after the fall of communism. Not necessarily, because well, no, the Soviet it's... Union collapsed in December of 1991. Uh, Ukraine had been independent since August of 1991, but this was still like the first, basically the first one. After the independence, but there was, there was, there was, right. in 89, they let the people yeah. in already. Oh, okay. 90 more, 91 more. Under, like you said, still Russia. This is the first one after. 1992 was the big right? blow from, yeah, 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 and that yeah. was my, that was my but chance. People, it must have been so emotional uh, to know that, like, finally the Jewish people had outlasted this evil thing. Yeah, and yeah. it was going to be sort of better from then on. We what saw. Was it, what was it like? What was the feeling well, First like of all, we, we saw elder Jewish survivors of the Holocaust coming out. We saw all these old Jewish people. I remember a few of them with medals. They wanted to show all the medals in the army, the Red Army. Wow. They fought. And they were coming out. There was such a, you know how it was under communist Russia. It was a fear. And they were coming out. You saw these old people, some were crying. I was amazed to see, you know, these old babuchkas with their heads covered, right? And these old men, and they were coming to see all these chassidim. And it reminded them of memories possibly way before, because already after World War I already, this was being destroyed. So they had good memory to go so far. They remember they saw this, they saw that. They still spoke Yiddish even, these old people. So it was, it was for us to see these older people, these old Jews coming out. One captain, he, came, he was missing an arm. A Jewish guy, he spoke, he was speaking Yiddish. He became in his USSR army badges, because that was that for them is the highest honor that they served in the Russian army, even though they suffered under persecution under the Russians, for them that was the biggest honor. So it was one old guy, member, a Jewish man speaking Yiddish to the Hasidim, with all his medals and everything, and telling him what he did, and he shot this German, and this and that. It was unbelievable. And they were coming out. Many of them have, have already passed on. This is 1992, 1993, 1994. Yeah, I, I, one lady, she even came to Canada, to Toronto, I'm from Toronto originally, and she found out about our Breast of Center. She didn't speak a word of English. She came telling us, 
who she was, where she grew up, and her whole memory of Uman and coming to Rosh Hashanah as a girl before World War II and everything on her family. Her name was Weis- Weislib. She was descended from Breslov Hasidim. But uh, that was the big thing to see those survivors, Jews who were still here, they just came out like mushrooms. They started sprouting because they saw Jewish existence open and open on the streets here. It was something unbelievable for them and for us. What is it that you, you think that speaks to people from all backgrounds of Ravinah? What do you see is it that draws all these kind, different kinds of people? Oh, that's similar to the way? first question. His Rabinachman's ability, no matter where you're coming from, he says something and it just hits you on the dot. There's something very special in Rabinachman's teachings that when you give them over, people say, that's exactly what I needed to hear right now, that's exactly what I'm going through right now, that's, oh my God, how do you know how to read my mind? It's the Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration in his teachings, that when revealed and exposed, they hit the, the, the what's it called, you know, the arrow on, the, on the, the bullseye. They get to the person exactly at that time. Obviously, to people who are receptive to that, people are looking for that. Many people, they're not looking for that. They're looking for money and fame in this world, and they're busy with other things. But once a person is open and tuned to God and Hashem and their purpose in life, so such people are receptive to hear such teachings, so that when it comes to them, this is exactly what they were waiting for for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I was waiting to hear this. I was waiting for this message to come that Hashem was like as if sending His message that He loves me and there's a hope and this is the wake-up call and now I'm here to follow the yo-yo back. The yo-yo that does, that's come down to me, I'm willing now to come back. This is the uniqueness. Even Gentiles, I can't explain it, even Gentiles are connecting to Rabbi Nachman's teachings. Even though they don't do mitzvot and everything, but the joy and encouragement part of Rabbi Nachman's teachings and the faith part to talk to God and everything, which even a Gentile can do, they have a major connection and affinity to that. What's supposed to happen when you say Tikkun Klali at the Rebbe's uh, tomb? A lot. <laughs> what do you mean what's supposed well, to happen? you go, you, you take out the Tikkun Klali. It's not magic. It's all like, okay, yeah. I'll do this, and that's it. Hocus Pocus. It's not Hocus Pocus. There's a... Rabbi Nachman has a lot of depth in the concept of the Tikkun Klali. What's written by him as what it's supposed to do. What you see or not is not necessarily a proof. Just because you don't see the changes doesn't mean also there's no changes. It doesn't work like that. You, first of all, we have to always remember, if I don't see something, it's not because the item has a problem. It's me that has the problem. I don't see it. I don't have the right prescription to see it. But it's actually changing. Ibn Nachman says in his lesson that this, these 10 Psalms are essentially instituted to rectify damage caused by sexual blemishes, which in Judaism is considered the worst. Okay? If now, it's called a general remedy, because since it can help for sexual blemishes, which in Judaism is considered a primary transgression and prohibition, whether it's uh, immorality, bestiality, etc., 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 whatever, so automatically anything underneath also can, it can rectify the damage. So people, Rabbi Nachman made a promise associated with that, and the promise was that anybody that comes to his grave gives a coin to charity in his memory. That means to say, like in Hebrew, in mem- I'm giving this coin to charity in memory of Rabbi Nachman and his mother's name, Ben Fega, the son of Fega, and then recites the 10 Psalms called the Tikkun Aklali, those specific 10 chapters of Tehillim, 
and then also takes upon himself to want to become a better person, Rabbi Nachman promised in front of two witnesses, he swore in front of two witnesses, that he will do the maximum power that he has, and he shows and expresses that he has that power, to pull a person out of the lowest depths of hell, no matter what he may have done. The main thing is that he wants to change from now on, this person has hope. What's unique about this is we don't find any tzaddik in Jewish history that has made such a, a commitment to a promise and oath such as that. So that's, what he, that's why he sticks out in this area. No one, no one made such a, a statement like that. So it's the tikkun akali plus the coin, plus being by the grave that activates big time salvation. But anywhere in the world that a Jew says the tikkun akali, it helps very, very much. That's his wording. His wording was that saying these 10 Psalms anywhere, if it's in Jamaica, if it's in Nevada, it's in Nebraska, in Yemen, wherever you are, it's, it, it, it does rectification. But here is for a person who needs big time, big time help because he knows he's very, very far. This is the advice given to people to come here and to recite those 10 Psalms, the, the coin, etc., with the hope that this tzaddik will now intercede on my part. So I have backing now in my life that of, of starting again and someone there out there to help me to, to make it God willing in life, in this world and also in the next world. From the people that you've seen, the people that you know, what seems to be the most uh, central, important message that has changed their life from people have told you, people that you yourself? <coughs> it's hard to say. Each one has a different point. One person, it's simcha, joy. One person, it's encouragement. One person, it's hitbodidut. One person, it's the tzaddik, the idea of the tzaddik in his life. Each person is different. I've never met two people that are exactly identical in their reasoning. Each one had a different draw to Rabbi Nachman and his teachings. So there's no, you can't put a finger on this specifically. Is, is there, is there, a, is there a, a main message that Rabbi Nachman was uh, trying to give out to the world? There's a few. There's a few main messages. We can give a few of them. Sure. One statement that's very powerful, it's a famous song that Rosh Shlomo Karlbach took, is that the, the world is a very narrow bridge. The wording of Rabbi Nachman actually is, you should know that a person, a man, has to walk upon a very narrow bridge, that's his life. And the main thing is not to make himself afraid, not to make himself afraid at all of what he has to go through, just to walk that bridge. That's one powerful statement. Another powerful statement, an example, is it's a big mitzvah to always be happy. That's, that's very powerful. Another one, if you believe that you can cause damage, then believe with that same belief that you can also correct and fix. And one of the most powerful ones, for me at least, is a statement he made a few months before he passed away, in the year 1810, on the 18th of the month of Tishrei. He, he exclaimed on... Shabbat Nachamu before that, before that, before he passed away. That's in the summer. Givald in Yiddish means like Givald is like a statement of like, oh my God, like oi, if you want to say, there is no such thing as despair. This statement seems to be the most powerful of all of his statements. Is this one over here? How do you? How, how would you interpret that statement? What, is, what did he mean? What he said? There's no such thing as despair. Because it um, seems so obvious that there is such thing as despair. What do you mean by it? It may be necessary just to bring a story associated with this that took place almost 100 years after his passing, approximately the year 1885. 
Okay, this is a very scary story, but it's recorded in a book called Tovot Zichronot. Tovot Zichronot. Good memories. Yes, was written by a grand, great grandson of Rav Nosin. Rav Nosin is the main disciple of Rabbi Nachman. It's in, in normal Hebrew pronunciation, you call him Rabbi Nathan. But in breast of affectionately, even by Sephardim, they say Rav Nosin. Rav Nosin. Okay, Natan is Nosin. So Rav Avram Sternartz, he, re- he recalls in this, in this book, Tovot Zichronot, that once he and his brother-in-law, Rav Mordechai Shochetu Bodek, they went one eve of Rosh Chodesh in that year, 1885, to Davin, prostrate by Rabbi Nachman's grave. And along with them came an elder man who was a disciple of Rav Nosin, who was still alive in 1885. His name was Rav Pinchas Yehoshua. This Rav Pinchas Yehoshua, he uh, was very appreciative that they helped him to ascend. You know, Rabbi Nachman's grave is like on a hill on one side, and it's on top. And the way they would come to the grave was from here below, going upwards. You see behind, you can't see behind you, but we're at the bottom of the hill. So Rabbi Nachman's Yeshua spent more time davening by that grave, by the grave of Rabbi Nachman. They finished earlier, and they were waiting for him down below the hill. When he'd finished, Rabbi Nachman's Yeshua, he... When he reached them, he froze, and he let out a krechts, a very loud shrine. He started to scream, like, Oi! In pain. And they, they, got, they got panicky, like, what's happening? He's having a seizure, what's, ha- what's happening? And he began to look at himself, at his hands, and himself, what's going on? He was a normal person, he wasn't someone uh, strange. Someone, he wasn't someone who lost his, his screws. So he said, my dear friends, I have just had a revelation of all of my reincarnations until now. And he began to list explicitly who he was, what generation he lived, where he was, and in which tzaddikim he had contact. He was always a Jew, but which tzaddikim, righteous individuals, did he have contact in each every reincarnation? He began to list, and this time with this Tana, this Amora from the time of the Mishnah, from the time of the Gemara. So he said about himself, that I was reincarnated, reincarnated many, many, many times, more than other people. And he said his soul was so blemished due to his actions that he had done in every generation, that when he approached the tzaddik of that specific generation, if it was a Tana or an Amora or someone else, like Rishonim, Achronim, he came requesting help, assistance from this, this tzaddik or that tzaddik to help have a rectification for his soul. And he said that tzaddikim worked hard to help him, but they couldn't help him. They said, we can't help you, you're so blemished. Your only hope is if to come back again in reincarnation, and maybe then there'll be hope to help you. But we can't, you're so upside down. He gave an analogy of a mason who makes a building with bricks. Okay, the typical mason. And the mason sometimes comes across a very, very odd shaped brick that even if he chisels and chips it on one side, doesn't fit with the other side, so he chisels that side. It doesn't work with the other side now. It's so odd that as much as he tries to fix it, he can't use it, so he discards it. So he said, the souls of the Jewish people are like stones. As it says in Echa, Tishtapechna Avne Kodesh, Yirmiya, the prophet says, about the Jewish people who are lying on the streets of Jerusalem when it was destroyed by the Romans and by the, the Babylonians, that the, the holy souls, which refer to the Jewish people, are just out on the streets of Jerusalem. They're called stones. So he said, the Jewish souls are like stones, and they create, they're meant, each one is a brick, to create an edifice. This edifice, when completed, 
will bring, well, when it's completed, that's when Mashiach will come, God willing. That's the, that's the preparation for the Holy Temple, the Third Temple, that the Jewish souls are now uniting one with another over the generations until this building is complete. He said about himself, his soul was so crooked that he couldn't be used in this building. So it was discarded by this tzaddik. He came back again in another reincarnation, again discarded. And he said, it kept on happening. And his soul up in heaven, every time that he went up, he said, why am I suffering more than other people? Other people don't have such a problem as me. And they're able to get a rectification. And I'm so upside down. He said, this continued for generations and centuries. And now the buck stops here. That's not his word. That's just expression. Here now, 1885, he was born after Rabbi Nachman passed away. He said, yet he said a statement of a revelation. The heavens tremble to his name, Rabbi Nachman ben Fagin, because no one in Jewish history, in the history of the Torah, ever stressed the, the capacity of this statement, that there's no such thing as despair, like Rabbi Nachman did. Even though, for example, the statement appears in the Gemara. The Gemara, for example, says, that even if a sharp sword is on the throat of a person, don't give up, you're still a hope, okay? The idea is mentioned, but to stress it, like Rabbi Nachman put his foot down, he said, give out. There's no such thing as despair. He meant it, meaning that even if a person is in a situation which is despair, meaning what? Everyone's telling you it's over. The marriage, it's over. Your children, it's over with them. Your health issues, it's over. Everything, it's over, it's finished. Or in, in, in spirituality, you will never become a tzaddik. Look at you, you're just so immersed in, God forbid, pornography and stuff and, 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 and alcohol and smoking. You're never going to change. Forget it, forget it. Everyone, including the person's subconscious, is telling him it's finished. You never become a tzaddik. Look at you, with your fat stomach and this. And you're never going to make it. You're not going to make it as a big tzaddik, right? That's where Rabbi Nachman says you don't have to listen to them. Even if it's rabbis now. Rabbis, you, you think they're representing the Torah. And they give you a message of despair because there's nothing more damaging to a person's health and happiness than feelings of despair. Even if, God forbid, justified, it breaks a person. It breaks a person. A person's striving for something and tell me it's just you're, you're in vain. You're wasting your time. This, Rabbi Nachman said, you don't have to accept it. You don't have to accept it as being the absolute truth. We're not saying, so you're going to fake yourself a little fake reality. No, I'm living on a different plateau of a real reality where I believe, yes, that miracles can happen. I remember hearing the statement of the, who was the man, Jonathan Pollard. He was interviewed recently, right? And he said that the police asked him when he was in America in the jail, do you ever think you can get out of this jail? And he said, yes, because I believe in God. Yes, do you believe in God? They said, yes, well, I believe in God. Because I believe in God, automatically means I believe in miracles, because that's what God is for, to cause miracles. Nachman teaches faith and miracles are synonymous, and prayer. Faith, prayer, and he lists other items, and miracles are one and the same, because that's what the idea of prayer is. If everything is just working according to nature, so why have to daven? Why have to pray? <laughs> Prayer is, because I believe there's someone who can mishane'et a teva. There's chiuva teva, which means nature dictates A, B, C, like in chemistry. Boom, 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 everything is clear, cut, and everything in logic and rationale. Faith comes to show a change. I'm sorry, there's someone above who orders and dictates. You, you'll never make it to Uman. You, you'll never change that. That's teva, let's say, nature. 
That's where despair takes place, yes. This, the word despair exists when you go according to that mentality. No despair is when you are living in what's called emuna mode. You're tapping into a life which is based on faith. When you live like that, it's not dictated anymore under the jurisdictions of everybody else. Now you're in a different ball game, and that's what Rabbi Nachman was saying when he stressed: "There's no such thing as despair." Another one. Yeah. Yeah. My question? Yes. Yeah, like, what would you say to um, Gary, to Gary? A convert? Somebody who wants to be who. What's the question exactly? <laughs> I need more specifications. Okay, there are many people who want to convert. Or for example, what's important in uh, Rebbe Nachman teachings for Goim? As Goim or as converts? No, Goim. As they are? Yeah. It's a good question. He does say, Rebbe Nachman, that eventually even the Gentiles will come to recognize the Torah and the faith and Hashem and the, and the greatness of the Jewish nation. That will eventually ha- happen. It's a verse... I think in Yirmiyahu, if I'm correct, or Yeshayahu, or another book, that all the nations will come flowing like rivers, like a Nahar, towards Hashem, towards the Jewish people, towards the Torah. So, as Gentiles, Rabbi Nachman says, they're, they're, they will eventually be waking up. He says in one lesson, lesson 21, that what a simple Jew perceives now, for example, a simple Jew on a regular Friday night at his Shabbos table, where he has that feeling, that special subconscious feeling of joy and pleasantness and delight, what a simple Jew has today, that will be the future perception of the non-Jews. Non-Jews don't have that yet. They in the future will have that, but what we will have then will be far, far higher than that. That's what he says as regards to Gentiles as they are. He also brings in another lesson, 24, on the Kutim Moran, that it's the Gentiles, due to the immense joy that will be revealed before Mashiach comes, the Gentiles will be the ones bringing the Jewish people back to the Holy Land. They won't be against them. The whole world will be full of such joy, rejoicing. Everyone will see, wow, the greatness of the Jewish people, due to this joy, and they will be the ones taking by hand every Jewish person to bring them back to the Holy Land. Amen. Thank you very much. Amazing.